Hey guys, good afternoon. It is Wednesday, July 8th, 2020. Welcome to episode 15 of the podcast. Uh, just kind of rolling along here, trying to get one of these up uh, every day or at least every other day. So, uh, you know, I've been hitting that goal fairly well recently and uh, really appreciate everybody checking in, listening to the episodes, sharing the episodes, that kind of thing. So thanks again, guys. Um, kind of wanted to focus a little bit different from some of the podcasts uh, or maybe all the podcasts I've done so far where I, I address multiple topics or things going on. I actually kind of want to drill down in this one um, and talk a little bit about um, the stock market in general. But I wanted to talk about one of my favorite authors who I've definitely brought up before, Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan, a bunch of other books that are outstanding. Um, and one of the concepts I learned from him that kind of solidified in my mind you know, in the eventual progression towards me withdrawing from the stock market, not investing uh, that way anymore, that kind of thing. Um, and it's one that's really stuck with me since then. In fact, I was real proud of the fact that in uh, the early 2010s, I had a blog going where I talked about a lot of stock market stuff uh, and a lot of stuff about Taleb. And I actually ranked in the top one or two positions in Google for this concept, for this term, that I'm going to talk to you guys about today. So it was really kind of a little mini badge of honor that I that I carried for a while <laughs> that uh, I was able to get that high in the uh, Google rankings organically uh, for discussing this particular term, uh, which of course isn't highly popular. Um, so it wasn't that hard. But um, before I read it to you guys, I'm actually going to I'm going to read uh, the paragraph from the Black Swan that discusses this concept. Uh, and by the way, the name of it is a triplet of opacity, okay? So triplet of opacity, um, you know, we're addressing opaqueness in something like, you know, a complex system like the stock market. Could apply really to anything. Um, you know, any complex system uh, could could suffer from, so to speak, the triplet of opacity. But for me, and, and of course with Taleb's background being in, you know, the market and being a trader and options trader and stuff like that, you know, he, he was kind of using it to address stock market uh, issues, I guess you could say. Um, but like I said, it could be carried over to other concepts. So before I kind of read it to you and pick it apart a little bit, um, this is kind of – this kind of goes with a general theme – that you're going to hear me come back to many times, and I've maintained this theme in my own life for a little while now. And again, it goes to this notion that, um, you know, I personally have kind of turned away from the stock market. I don't really do anything with it anymore. Uh, I did go through a period of time where I didn't do anything traditional with it, uh, but I implemented some of the um, other types of strategies that I learned from Taleb that centered on options. Uh, and had played around with that over the course of a decade or so, on and off. I mean, not for a full 10 years, but on and off across a decade, uh, I played with that strategy. But, you know, eventually just kind of, you know, decided it wasn't really for me. I didn't have the resources to sustain it properly. Uh, that's a totally different story that gets into um, using options to capture large um, moments of volatility in the stock market. Uh, where you get these outsized gains from you know having the right options in place when the market fluctuates wildly, uh, but then in those intervening time frames when it's not fluctuating wildly, you basically are just losing little bits of money at a time. So it's it's a strategy that's kind of a slow bleed, 
but if it's set up properly, it can capture these massive outsized gains, or as Taleb likes to call them, cubic gains, uh, where you're literally having a, a, a three as an exponent uh, to the variable, um, and, and you're literally seeing these massively compounding gains all of a sudden uh, if you hit the right options and so forth. So that's a totally different podcast, totally different story, <laughs> but that that's where I was for a little while. I was kind of in that limbo uh, doing non-traditional stock market stuff. And then I eventually just turned away from that altogether and decided to focus 100% uh, on real estate. Um, so that's, like I said, it's a, it's a story unto itself. But what I wanted to kind of use today for uh, was to address one of the building blocks of that philosophy, one of the things that kind of got me down that road that I learned from Taleb. And I think you know, there's so many things he's taught me that go into this bucket. That's why this is going to be kind of a recurring theme. I won't cover all this in one day or one podcast. But I but I certainly would encourage you to start off reading his book. You know, if you read The Black Swan, you're probably going to want to read his other books, uh, Fooled by Randomness, Anti-Fragile, Skin in the Game, uh, etc. But um, it, it's definitely, it sets the basis and the groundwork for you to at least take a different look or a different perspective on what the stock market really is. I mean, how a complex system like that actually behaves, how your money may be at risk inside of a complex system like that uh, and vulnerable to uh, forces unseen, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of abstract, you know, kind of <laughs> opaque concepts that you can't, you may not even know are happening uh, that that influence how the market behaves and how the market moves and that sort of thing. So it definitely, I mean, that's kind of a that's kind of a step zero, I think, is to read the Black Swan or certainly read about it. You know, you can go online, obviously, you can find all kinds of summaries and things like that. But to me, there's nothing like actually reading the book, getting the whole concept from him uh, with full context and so forth. But I just, you know, as I get into reading the the um, the passage from the book, I, w- I would kind of. And this part of the podcast by saying, I really believe there's something about human psychology, and I'm really talking about the average investor. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about institutional experts who do this for a living. Now they're fallible too. I mean, they're human also. They're, you know, they can be driven by greed. They can, they can, you know, experience oversights and they can make mistakes and so forth. So I'm not saying they're perfect and they always make money in the stock market. But what I will say is they have a little bit of different perspective and a little bit of different context to what they do with the stock market. So I'm not really talking about them. I'm really talking about the average individual who, you know, earns their money some other way than, than through the stock market. They, you know, they have a job, a business, whatever, and then they invest their money in the stock market because they were kind of told that that was the best place to put it. Okay, so that's really – that's who I'm kind of talking about when I say human psychology – but there's something in human psychology, and this is not anything new that I'm proffering here. I mean, you know, this is stuff you can find lots of people smarter than me writing about and addressing. But it's just more of a gut feeling for me um, uh, that I kind of put this forward, and I and I believe I fall into this category. I mean, I'm, I'm subject to this. Um, is that there's something in human psychology that signals us to behave or take action against our own interest, regardless of which way the market is moving. So what I mean by that is when, when you're in a situation where the best possible decision you can make 
is to withdraw or, or pull back or take your money out of the stock market, that is often the time where most people hang on and they leave their money in the market or they stay invested in whatever they're invested in and they ride it all the way basically to the bottom, right? And then on the flip side, there are moments where, um, where you should get out of the market, right? You, sh- you, sh- you should not be riding it to the bottom. You should be withdrawing and you should be, you should be actually pulling your money back. But, um, um, but, 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 you know, you don't, you don't take that action because of the psychology, uh, that that's, that's behind it. Or, or I should say you, you, you should be hanging on and you should be riding it out, but you don't, you end up pulling your money back prematurely. So apologize for the confusion. <laughs> but the point is we end up doing the opposite of what should really be happening. And it's, I don't, I don't know what the fundamental psychology behind it is. I don't know if it's fight or flight. I don't know if it's something else or what you would call it. I mean, it's not my field of expertise. But there's, there's something built into our psyche that is not suited to the machinations of a complex system like the stock market. They're not compatible. Okay. And I think it's really, when you really think about it, you know, let's say you agree with me. It's very, it's kind of a fascinating conclusion to come to when you measure it against the message that is constantly being pounded into most people's heads about what they should do with their money, right? I mean, we're always being told, you know, you, you match the money in a 401k, you put your money in stocks, the stock market goes up on average 8% every year, blah, 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 right? It's all that conventional wisdom, you know, I could cite over and over again here. But when you think about it, and you realize that in reality, it may be the exact opposite of all that wisdom, the exact opposite of all that guidance, and that it may very well be that you know, what drives us psychologically is fundamentally incompatible with a complex system like the stock market. It's kind of groundbreaking, right? It's kind of mind-blowing because it just blows away everything we've been taught and everything we've been told. Okay. So, um, you know, when we, when, when the COVID crisis began and and the stock market was just fluctuating wildly in March and April in particular, um, you know, I was kind of posting at the time about it. I was, I was putting up some tweets and some stuff on Facebook and stuff like that. Um, I think I made a video at one point, uh, late March, uh, during one particularly wild swing, uh, in the market. And I was basically saying something to the effect, it's a little bit paraphrased, but I was saying something to the effect of when you combine um, sort of um, a hyper-liquid market with a herd mentality, you get disastrous outcomes, right, for your investment, right? For, for people who are invested in, in sort of a passive way in the market, like they put their money in the market, they're not really paying much attention to it you know, checking in on it every once in a while kind of thing. It's not actively managed, you know, the whole thing, the average investor kind of thing, right? But you get what I would call a hyper-liquid market that is driven, that, ha- that has an underpinning of herd mentality to it. it. It can be utterly and completely disastrous. And so when I say that, and I know I've digressed a little bit from, uh, from the, the concept that I want to talk about today, but we'll come back to that. 
Um, when I say a hyperliquid market, I'm basically talking about the fact that you know you can enter and exit a stock market position in theoretically less than one second. Okay, <laughs> like when you think about it, it takes you longer to key in the position. Like I want to buy 10 shares of Apple, for example. Just me saying that out loud or just you typing that into your computer takes 10 times as long as it takes, and I'm being figurative, takes 10 times as long as it takes for you to buy those 10, to, to literally like have the mechanism in the system, buy you those 10 shares and sell those 10 shares, right? So you can actually acquire the 10 shares and unload the 10 shares faster than you can key in the order. Okay, so and, and what we're talking about here, of course, is we're talking about an automated system that's that's driven by computers, by systems, by machines, by algorithms, things like that. Okay, it goes with the whole trend towards high frequency trading, where computers are trading in and out of stocks, you know, instantaneously in nanoseconds and things like that. So that's what I mean by hyper liquid, right? When you can liquidate a position faster than you can close and open your eyelids. Okay. My term for that is hyperliquid. I'm not sure that's really an official term. I don't think I've really heard anybody else describe it that way, but that's how I describe it. So we have a hyperliquid market that is then being driven by massive sentiment, like everybody's scared of the pandemic or everybody was scared of the housing crisis in 2008. You have the recipe for disaster, right? You have a recipe for massive, deep fluctuations in the stock market that create tremendous losses for the people who are on the trailing end of those trends, right? I mean, now if you're in the institutions and you're doing this for a living and you're tracking every movement and you you own some of those high-frequency algorithms, you probably don't have it as bad. You probably survive these things a lot better than, you know, Joe Smith uh, who goes to work every day for a living and checks his 401k once a month. Okay, so anyway, so I just kind of wanted to to sort of set the stage like that. And so, and, and by the way, this podcast might be a little longer than <laughs> some of the other ones I've done recently. We're at the 15-minute mark, uh, and we're now just getting to this uh, this concept that I want to talk about. But anyway, let me, you know, so I've opened up the book here. I have Black Swan in front of me. Um, if you have it in front of you, you can read along on page 8. Um, <laughs> under History and the Triplet of Opacity, that's the section that uh, that I'm kind of reading from here. Um, and in fact, instead of just reading the three points of the triplet, instead of those three three items, let me just kind of read you the, the paragraph or two before that, uh, where Taleb says here, and I'm quoting, history is opaque. You see what comes out, not the script that produces events, the generator of history. There is a fundamental incompleteness in your grasp of such events, since you do not see what's inside the box, how the mechanisms work. What I call the generator of historical events is different from the events themselves, much as the minds of the gods cannot be read just by witnessing their deeds. You are very likely to be fooled about their intentions. Uh, He says that this disconnect is similar to the difference between the food you see on the table at the restaurant and the process you can observe in the kitchen. And then he goes on to say, and here's where he describes the triplet. Quote, the human mind suffers from three ailments as it comes into contact with history, what I call the triplet of opacity. They are A, the illusion of understanding, or how everyone thinks he knows what is going on in a world that is more complicated or random than they realize. 
B, the retrospective distortion, or how we can assess matters only after the fact, as if they were in a rearview mirror. Essentially, history seems clearer and more organized in history books than in empirical reality. And C, the overvaluation of factual information and the handicap of authoritative and learned people, particularly when they create categories, when they, quote, platonify, unquote. And platonify is another term that he uses uh, throughout the book, um, kind of the root, root word of Plato there. Uh, but, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. So that's the triplet. The, A, the illusion of understanding. B, the retrospective distortion. C, the overvaluation of factual information. So if we just go through them one by one, just kind of, you know, go a little bit deeper on each one of them, kind of related to practicality and, and the market and stuff like that. And we start with <clears throat> the illusion of understanding, where he says everyone thinks they know what's going on in a world that is more complicated than they realize. So if I was relating this to the stock market, I, I would have to say we suffer from that with the stock market, right? We believe that when the market moves in a certain direction, we believe we have the explanation for it. Right? I mean, think about it. The last time you turned on CNBC or the news or whatever, let's say the market had a wild swing that day. There's a belief that we can explain why it had a wild swing. We can, we can name a couple of events or maybe one single event, uh, one single occurrence, whatever, and that that explains it. Right? So, so in other words, I think what I would kind of interpret what Taleb writes here as is to invert it a little bit is that we underestimate the complexity of the system. We think the system is fairly simple, right? We think the stock market is explainable, okay? But it's not, <laughs> okay? It's, it's so vastly complex with so many uh, participants, so many different decisions being made in any given minute or second, with so many different nodes coming off that network of interconnected businesses and industries and investors and individuals and so forth, it is so vastly complex and entangling that our attempts to simplify it are laughable, essentially. Okay, so when we talk about the illusion of understanding, I think that just fundamentally speaks to the fact that people believe the stock market is an explainable phenomenon. It's an explainable system. And it's not. Okay, so that's the first item. So we move to the second one, the retrospective distortion, how we assess matters only after the fact, whereby history seems clearer and more organized in the history books than in empirical reality. So we've all seen this, right? I mean, you know, if you've lived through a historical event, you know, let's say you lived through 9-11, for example, right? And you remember all the, the things that were going on, then all the different news stories and events and sub-events and and you know, this event led to this event, led to that event, right? And you kind of recall that. And then you open up a history book and you read, you know, the one-page summary of 9-11 and how it just kind of tidies it all up into a couple paragraphs worth of information. Well, then you know what Taleb is talking about here, right? You, you, you can see that historical events, particularly ones we lived through and experienced, they sound different on a piece of paper. They sound they sound linear, they sound simplified, they sound tidy. But if you actually live through it, you know it was more complicated than that, right? 
So I think what when Taleb says retrospective distortion, and we're talking about the stock market, similar to illusion of understanding, but a little bit more geared towards looking backwards, like, oh, we know exactly why the stock market crashed in 1987, or we know exactly what happened in 2006, 7, 8, 9, when the subprime mortgage crisis turned into the mortgage crisis, turned into the credit crisis, turned into the recession, right? You see how I just sort of linearly put those four things together? So, so it's kind of like, it's, it's taking the illusion of understanding a step further, right? And it's saying, oh, well, this event or these events are now in a rear view mirror and we can just kind of look at them and we can just say, oh, well, of course that's what happened. Of course we, of course we knew that's what was going to happen if we just paid a little closer attention to at the time or, you know, if we just kind of thought about it a little bit harder. Yeah, that was, that was something that could have been seen or could have been anticipated. But that's only because it, it's now occurred in a retrospective uh, sense, okay? With any event that's actually already ongoing, of course we never see it the same way. We never can anticipate what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Because you're in the middle of the event. But you get this false sense that you can explain things and you can understand things once they've already happened, okay? And so, uh, again, you're, ha- you're, you're sort of benefiting from the, uh, the dynamic of sort of smoothing out and simplifying and cleaning up that historical event into something digestible, right? When in fact, when it was actually happening, you had no clue what was happening, right? And you had no clue what was going to happen. Okay, so this happens a lot with the stock market. I mean, you know, you, you, know, you hear, uh, you know, quote unquote experts on TV all the time talking about, you know, understanding the factors that went into this recession or that depression or that stock market crash. But they're very easily able to make those observations and those, those types of commentaries because those things have already happened. Okay, so that's the retrospective distortion. So we come to the third one, item C, and that was the overvaluation of factual information, the handicap of authoritative and learned people. So I think what, what Taleb is getting to there specifically, and this is absolutely the case with the stock market. I mean, if you, you know, if you, um, you know, if you're an investor in the stock market or you pay attention to the news on it, you watch Bloomberg, you watch CNBC, that sort of thing, then you absolutely have to acknowledge. That this is, you know, this is something that plagues that industry, which is the talking heads, the experts, quote unquote, who come onto the television screen and speak authoritatively about investing and the stock market and recessions and so forth, all those types of topics. But they're just coming across as learned and expert and so forth on those topics because, you know, that's what they do for a living. That's what they, that's the, lo- the language, the jargon they speak all day long is in, that, is in that discipline. But it doesn't actually mean that they have any better ability to anticipate or predict where things are going. I mean, if you take, if you take most of the men and women on uh, a channel like CNBC or Bloomberg and you ask them what's in their portfolio – or whether they got hit in the last recession or the last market crash, they're just like the rest of us. I mean, they're just experiencing the exact same effects, um, you know, in almost all cases that you or I would would experience, right? Their their portfolio tanked. They lost money. You know, they they 
They pick stocks on TV that, you know, if you come back a year later and check on them, they've gone down. You know, <laughs> so I mean, so they're, they're not any more right or any more able to predict or, or assess these types of events or these types of occurrences any better than you or I, right? But the very position they're put in creates a false sense of trust around them. So this is where when they're put into those positions and we see them in those positions and we trust them because they're in those positions, that is where we become over-reliant on factual or expert-driven information. So we believe because we turned on CNBC and they explained why the market crashed that that gives them uh, some level of authority or trust that we then carry over to their next prediction or their next stock market pick or their, you know, their next stock pick, right? When in essence, they've done nothing but the first two items, right? They've, they've, they've uh, oversimplified things and they've retrospectively distorted things. And so they have no better ability to produce uh, um, accurate information about what's going to happen now or what's going to happen next they're no better at that than you or I. Okay, so so that's really so that's the triplet of opacity, and and maybe we will get this done on time here, um, twenty five minutes. Um, that's the, that's the triplet of opacity. Okay, uh, the illusion of understanding, the retrospective distortion, and the over reliance on quote unquote factual or expert information. Okay, and when you, I mean, again, like I said, that whole concept is about more than the stock market. You can apply that to, you know, name something else that, you know, is, is hard to understand or is, is uh, you know, catches human beings by surprise. And, and, and you can see where these three things come into play. But I think it is so relevant in a practical, everyday sense to apply this concept to, excuse me, to uh, the average individual's experience with investing in the stock market. And I think when you really absorb those three items, when you really understand what the triplet is, is, is intimating, I mean, you almost get sort of chills up your spine because you realize, wait a second, you know, all my money or most of my investments are in the stock market, yet the stock market is a system that suffers from this triplet of opacity. You know, it is oversimplified. It is retrospectively distorted. It is overexplained by so-called experts who are really as dead wrong as, as you or I might be. Okay. So when you realize that that's what you're dealing with, like I said, it's, it's, it's kind of a scary notion. It's kind of, um, it's, it's kind of threatening in a way. And I think when you pile on top of that, what I was saying earlier about, you know, a hyper liquid environment. Okay. Um, you know, you know, that being the stock market, a hyper liquid environment that's often driven in, in, in waves of panic or waves of herd mentality every five or 10 years, you know, when we get the next crisis, uh, you realize how at risk your money really is, you know? And, and again, you're sort of lulled to sleep in the intervening time frame, right? Because we get these 100-year floods every 10 years, right? So every 10 years, give or take, something blows up and creates a massive fluctuation in the market creates a massive disturbance or dislocation in the market and everybody's caught off guard because for the prior nine years or the prior seven or eight years, everything kind of looked normal. Everything kind of chugged along without a problem, right? And then all of a sudden, we're exposed to this incredible intense degree of risk that was sort of hidden, you know, by this triplet of opacity. So, 
going to kind of wrap it up here, guys. Um, you know, I could go on forever about this. I mean, there's all kinds of concepts Taleb uh, talks about in this book that carry over to the stock market. I mean, this is literally just scratching the surface. But I want you guys to kind of think about, you know, if you are invested in the stock market, you know, and, and you know, hopefully you do plan to get the book or you want to read more about what Taleb says. But even if you're not doing that yet, think about that triplet of opacity. Think about those three principles and how they apply to where your money is located. Okay, I mean, just literally like overlay it on top of your personal situation. You know, do you see the oversimplification? Do you see the retrospective distortion? Do you see the over-reliance on factual information? And I think when you when you do that, if you go through that exercise, you're almost certainly going to come up with the conclusion that, wow, I'm at a greater degree of risk than I ever thought. I mean, I, get, I, mean, I can almost guarantee you, if you really think about it, you're going to walk away saying, my money is at more risk than I ever thought before. Okay, now that may not motivate you to take it out. You may not feel like there's anywhere better to put it. I mean, I, you know, a million other threads there that could get pulled. But I do think that at a, at a very basic fundamental level, you would walk away and say, I am at greater risk than anybody told me I was. Or I am at greater risk than I ever assumed prior to contemplating something like uh, the triplet of opacity. So, Anyway, just, you know, going to wrap it up here, guys. I mean, really excited to hear feedback on this. Anybody, you know, I mean, I know this is, you know, this is going against the grain. This is definitely counter conventional wisdom here. Um, but, you know, if you know Taleb, then you're not surprised by it, uh, you know, and you've kind of absorbed it uh, already. Uh, but if you haven't, and it's kind of new to you, definitely like to hear uh, reactions on that as well. So, if you guys want to, uh, you know, reach out or, you know, kind of throw a question uh, my way or questions about this, you know, we'd love to talk more about it and address those or just hear your feedback or your input commentary on it uh, at CJ Anastasio on Twitter, uh, at Christopher Anastasio LLC on Facebook business page. Um, but super, super appreciate you guys listening, uh, you know, thinking, you know, through these topics with me, your feedback, your questions, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh but yeah, really appreciate everybody listening, reacting, sharing, liking, all those types of things. So um, with that, going to wrap it up here uh, for the day, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, check back in with you guys tomorrow. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.